Hello and welcome to the Buddhist Recovery Network podcast. My name is Vimala Sara. I'm the current president of the Buddhist Recovery Network. Speaking to the trauma queen, Jamenica, during this time of the public lynching in the USA and international uprisings within the context of this pandemic, what better time to talk about trauma? We are all having to be locked down in our homes, so please bear with us. The dog's barking lets us know she too is fed up of being locked down. The barking does settle. Brace yourself. We are doing some tough talking about trauma and it's important to listen. Some wise lessons from the trauma queen herself, Germanica. I think this was the best podcast I've ever done because I felt connected to you. Um, and I think this conversation will speak to so many other people. And I am appreciative for this platform. I think there's, like I always say, I think there's so much healing in hearing other people's journeys and their stories that you can pick up certain aspects and be like, oh, one, I'm not alone. Someone else did it. But also you can hear how they navigated it. That's what my podcast is about, hearing someone's story and then how to how they navigate it. And maybe you can pull something that you can connect with your life. So I hope that someone pulls someone, someone's, multiple people pull things from this conversation are able to use it in their continued journey. Jimonika, it's a, it's a great honor to, to, to speak to you for many reasons. And one of the main reasons, the new, new generation, that new generation coming through and, um, and there's lots I want to talk about, but I, I think at every stage is just really asking for consent to be able to, um, speak about certain certain things really yeah okay yeah Yeah. so um let's start with it's been a tough week um (laughs) yeah let's start with that it's been it's been a tough week being an african-american in america this week that's that's a nice way to say it yes it's been really hard And I think I had a breaking point yesterday that I was looking on my social media since, you know, we have to use social media. And I was scrolling through and I realized I was crying without even noticing it. And I was like, oh, what is, oh, I'm crying. And then once I realized I was crying, it's like the feelings and emotions were like, oh, we're ready now. And it was very heavy. And I started thinking about all of my cousins. I'm the oldest grandchild. And then there's a bunch of boys in between and they look scary, you know, quote unquote, they're all six, two and above black, but scared of the dark and the sweetest little humans, but people don't perceive that. So I was just thinking about my family and my friends and just how existing is a problem for people. And I don't understand it. No matter what I read, I I will watch uh, white supremacy documentaries to try and see their mindset. And it every time I watch one, I'm like, oh, you just are misinformed. Like you're ignorant. And that's ignorance, I think, can be fixed. But stupidity can also be fixed, but it's also a choice. So that's, that's it's been a week and, it, you know, it's not over. I saw another person was killed this, this morning. Uh, a trans man was killed. 
And it's, it's, it's a lot. It is. And let some of our listeners won't even have any clue about what we're we're talking about. I mean, for me, what comes to mind this week is, is the um, person in the park asking a white woman to put their dog on the leash. And mm-hmm. the white woman is ringing up saying, I'm being threatened by a black man, you know? Yeah. And then, yeah. of course, we've also got um, the, the Floyd, the, the guy who uh, the police kneeling on the guy. I can't breathe again. I can't breathe. And he ends up dead in custody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And this is the trauma. This is this is part of the trauma as uh, we as black people have to live with. Yeah. And it's it's <laughs> as I've been telling people, I mean, we already have the coronavirus. We have killer wasp outside racism is still happening and we're already in an active trauma situation. This is what I keep reminding my friends. They're like, I don't know. I feel like I'm like, oh, you're in a trauma state. Regardless, like this is going on around us. And then we add in more things on top of it. Like we add in death, we add in threats, we add in murder and fear and displacement and fear of, you know, eating. Like there's just so many things on top of it. And it's, it's a lot, right? And we can com- compartmentalize certain things to get through the days, but then we do have days where it's just too much and we have to tend to ourselves. It's a lot. And you're one of these people who are really helping us to tend to ourselves. So firstly, I wanted to ask you, how did you get the name Trauma Queen? <laughs> um, well, because I am a very interesting human and I call myself a queen anyway. Um, and I, I, this feels weird to say, but I love trauma and the Mm -hmm. sense of my connection to trauma is a part of just my being. And I think most of us in this world have had trauma in our lives, right? Like none of us are unscathed from trauma. I think there's different types of trauma. There's big T, little T, but also it's just a part of who we are. So trauma queen is just like my focus of things, things. Like it's just my focus of work for the most part. I focus on working with people that have had trauma. So basically I work with people because we've all had trauma. Um, But working in sexuality education, of course it focuses on sexual trauma, but I'm also expanding that a bit to be more inclusive of other things that are happening. But let's let's and and just let me know if if it's okay to, to talk about this, because as you say, it's Trauma is in your being, and mm-hmm. I just want to go back to if you're able to tell us how you how one of your early experiences of being in 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 the world with trauma. Yes, yeah, yes, yes. I I'm very open to talking about this. I also believe that there is healing and storytelling and sharing your journey. Um, so I like to preface this with I'm going to say a hard thing. Um, my mother was murdered when I was one years old by my sperm donor. You know, I say that because I ha- I don't believe that father is a word for this individual. So my sperm donor that allowed me to be here um, and they actually found me with her body after he murdered her and fled the scene. So for me, that is my first intro to trauma, right? Like I may not remember it. I may not be able to visualize it, but trauma is held in my body. Implicit, it, implicit, yeah. implicit memory. Yeah. Yeah. And it led me to this work. I wanted to help women. So I I wanted to 
be a part of helping those that were in domestic violence. And then when I was in school, I was raped. So that's another thing that added to this journey. It's my third year of college, I was raped. And that changed my work to be where I am today and the dedication and working in mental health facilities and seeing all of that. That's also trauma. Being able to see these people who are constantly in cycles of trauma and then seeing people that look like us that are black and brown or queer or whatever, women, and not getting the same support as other individuals that didn't look like us led me to where I am today, to wanting to focus my work. Like I think I want to support all people with trauma, but I want to focus on black individuals, brown individuals, folks with melanin that don't have They can't just walk down the street without someone turning their head. Thank you. And and yeah, I just, um, just, yeah, I just want to pause with that. Yeah. The, the impact that that had on you, what, what do you think was the impact on a, on a one-year-old child on having that experience of being with the dead mother? I mean, I'm sure it's a, it's a lot of loneliness, and a lot of fear and, uh, you know, pr- things I'm still working on as a, I'll be 33 on Sunday um, as a 33 year old, it's abandonment, right? Like it's not intentional abandonment, but it is abandonment. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So that first stamp of abandonment, actually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just saying that because we, we know that, as you say, everybody has trauma but not everybody who has trauma has addictions, but everybody who has addictions have a trauma. Would you say that you had any addictive behaviors growing up as a young person? No, I was, I was a reader. So, Mm. I mean, my addictiveness was just being nosy because I was then Mm. raised by my grandparents who were older and they did, I think they did amazing with what they could do. Right. I never went without or anything like that, but I think I was addictive to learning. Um, and knowing that there had to be, I'm so sorry, the dogs are barking. I hope you can't hear them. Um, I, I think I was addicted to finding a different way. Like I just knew that there had to be another way. Like there had to be a way that people could communicate. There had to be a way that people could get out of these cycles. There had to be a way to stay safe and stay alive. So I think maybe that was my addiction and trying to find a difference in what I had seen or what I had known. How old were you when you learned about your, your mother? How old were you? Yeah, I don't remember. My family's always been very honest and open with me. I do believe that they shared the story more as I got older. Um, but I, I've always known, like I can remember being adopted by my grandparents and like having to go to the courthouse. I remember walking into the courthouse and seeing prisoners in like orange jumpsuits. I remember going and talking and sitting with the judge and being so excited to tell him my full name and like standing up proud. But overall, I just feel like it, they've never lied to me in that aspect. So I was just like, I've always known. Uh, and, and one of the reasons why I asked you, because I do work in the field of trauma and um, been trained by somebody called Dr. Gabor Mate. And one of the things he says is it's it's not so much what happens to you, it's what happens inside you. And often people have nobody to speak to. And that's the trauma, no one to speak to. But yet 
despite that, your your grandparents were courageous in speaking to you about that incident, about that traumatic incident. Yeah. 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 I don't know if they spoke to anyone. Uh, and I think that is that's a whole nother story. Right. Like how they handle trauma and whatnot. I think it's totally different. I think I know that I'm not I'm quote unquote the black sheep. Because I'm like, there has to be more. I'm going to get a therapist because this is going to help. I'm going to go spiritual. And they just look at me like, who the hell are you? Where did you come from? And it's interesting. My therapist tells me this. And she said this when we first started working together a few years ago. She was like, I've never met someone like you that heals in every aspect of their life. Like everything that I do is a part of growing to be a different person and not a different person, but an evolving person. Mm. That's beautiful. Beautiful to be given that, that, that affirmation. And yeah, I, one of the things I'm um, just doing some research and listening to some podcasts on you is that I know that you've worked in group homes and uh, that's one of my experiences. I grew up in, um, in, in, in group homes on the streets, blah, blah, blah. And um, I, what, what, what was the experience of working with some of those young people and, and what was the trauma for them? So I worked, that was actually my first job. So I got kicked out of school. Thank God it was the best thing ever. And I became a rape crisis counselor, which was all volunteer work. I was the first person in hospitals and then went back to school. So while I was in school, I found this job and it was working in group homes with juvenile sex offenders. And so we, there were 11 houses, six boys, each house. Um, and we were never empty. I worked there almost two years, never empty. We had a list. So there, a lot of people assumed that they were also sexually assaulted. Um, and from my experience working there was 50, 50, some were harmed and then caused harm, which is a thing which you, you and I work in this field, we know that's a thing. But also it was a lot of these individuals had other traumas, you know, maybe neglect, emotional, and they were seeking connection and whatnot. And, and they were over-sexualized. Yeah. And, and they were like, well, I want to try this. I want to act this out. And it was normally someone smaller, someone weaker, someone older, someone with a disability. So I saw everything. And then it was interesting because there were these boys and they were like, I'm so tough and scary, but they were just boys. And they would just have moments that I would just look at them and just be like, you are just a baby. You are just a child as bad and hard as you think you have to be. You are a baby who doesn't know. Like I, the, the ages we had were 12 to 18. I remember being 12 to 18 and I didn't know anything. I mean, I just started feeling like I know things, you know, in my 30s. And I'm like, these are children that were also thrown away. So abandonment, neglect, um, a lot of lack of education. Some of them couldn't sure. read or write. The adverse child experiences, yeah. They didn't yeah. They didn't know, you know, simple things. So for me, I would go in and yes, I had to be a disciplinarian, but also my want for them was to learn life skills. Like come in the kitchen with me. Let me teach you how to cook. Let's grocery shop. Let me teach you how to do this. Like I had to teach a 16 year old how to tie his shoes. And it's like, yes, these children and these individuals should be held accountable 
But also for me, I think what's missing in society is the lack of support for those that cause harm. We're, we're in such a throwaway space. Like, yeah, I think some people are really just disturbed in certain aspects and they can't be supported. Like this is just who they are. But I think there is so much more that we could be giving back to these individuals. Mm. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I want to talk about uh, one of the areas of, of the, the trauma of sexual assault, partly, you know, growing up in a group homes, I was sexually assaulted and um, and then actually also having a short period of living with my biological mother who sexually assaulted me and then was um, attacked in, in my early 20s. But what I know is, is that I had disordered eating. That was the impact. I, I I know that um, there was definitely a big link between sexual assault and disordered eating for me. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? I wholeheartedly agree. That was one of my jobs. I my my goal in life was to be able to work in different aspects to learn people, and I worked for almost two years in eating disorders, and and what came up was a lot of them had disordered eating because of the trauma. And I think it's it makes sense. It's a way of coping. It's a way of feeling like you have control of things. It's a way of, of you feeling like you can protect yourself and like you get to decide what that looks like. And I get it. And also there's the mindset of people that overeat. They're like, if I get bigger, no one will desire me. Yeah. If I if I don't eat, maybe I'll get so skinny that no one will desire me, but mm. I'm also in control of what goes into my mm. body. Mm. And I'm like, it all makes mm. sense to me. Yeah. Like when yeah. people are like, ah. Also with the bulimia as well, it's like purging out the filth. It's like yeah. that real purging. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's it's again just a way of navigating how to heal yourself without knowing mm. what to do. And so when people are like, I can't believe they do that. And I'm like, you don't know their story. You don't know their journey. Like, how do we help them? Like, what do they need to understand what they're doing? And some people have the disordered eating. Some people have the alcohol. Some people have the drugs. Some people have the porn addiction. Why? What What? What do you think it is that, that you know, somebody... People can grow up in the same family, have similar experiences, but one person will have the disordered eating, one person will have the alcoholism, one people will have the drug addiction, etc. Why do you think that is? I think we can grow up in the same home and still just be different people with different biology. Um, I went the drinking route when I was in college. I was drinking every day. And it's also like the numbing factor of like, you don't know how to operate and you don't know how to process it. So you're like, well, I'm going to just act like it didn't happen and I'm going to numb it out. And I think I think it's true. Like we can all, we, you and I could have grown up in the same house and still had a totally different journey. Um, and I think, you know, the houses we grew up when are, grow up in are a part of us, but they're not all of us. Like people that grow up in super abusive homes, they can come out of that and be abusive or they can come out of it and be like, I don't want this life. Like I have to figure out a different path kind of thing. But I think it's, I think it's biology in some aspects. Um, But there is science around addiction being like somewhat genetic, which is interesting. Um, And it can be passed down. Like a lot of things can be passed down and it just depends on also, I think if you're leaning into certain aspects, if you're just like, well, this is this. Okay. This is comfortable. Like this feels good. I can be present and do this. 
one of the um, jobs that I was really um, fascinated with is that you you have been a what I would call the first responder when somebody has been um, sexually assaulted or, or raped and they get to speak to you. And one of the reasons why I was really fascinated with it is because, you know, at the age of um, 27, that was it the last time where where I experienced this 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 attack. And I remember thinking, this is one thing that is not going to get me down. This was, I was just determined. Like I'd, I'd had my lot and I can remember I was on holiday and I came back and I spoke about it. I kind of spoke about it to my friends. I kind of went up, I was living in England then, went up to the women's pond, really chilled out and really spoke about it. And I think for me, what I realised was it was the first time that I was able to really speak about uh something like this that had happened to me. So it's really interesting the work that you, you've done or you're still doing with those people. Yeah. I, you know what, that one, it was all volunteer. So we had like three different hospitals that I would be connected to. I would just get a call in the middle of the night and I would meet them there. Never. I didn't know them. They didn't know me. They were literally walking in with the police to get their, their assessment, their SART kit to examine their bodies. And for me, it was the most humbling gift to for someone to trust you that they've never met, to allow you to sit there and reach out and hold your hand and say, thank you for being here, just being with me, while they are retelling their story, while they are having someone do medical swabs on their body and like more invasive things. That for me was my turning point. So that's that's what happened for me. That was before I started really doing this work. That was the first thing I did. And it was it was so amazing to me. Like it was such a beautiful experience in the sense of it just was so easy for me to show up for individuals. And and like I always say, my work is a gift. Um, but to be able to sit there and hear their stories. One, I had to learn a lot about myself on facial expressions because you hear things that maybe you've never heard. And also like the focus of leaving whatever happened in my life outside those doors because only thing that mattered right now was supporting this individual and keeping them safe in whatever that meant. Because who knows what they had just been through. I mean, I learned while I was sitting there, but to come from whatever they just came from, to sit in this now cold, sterile room, because you know that's how hospitals are. But I wanted to bring like the comfort and love that they were seen. And this is what I always say in my work now, is I want to only do things that allow people to seem, to be seen, supported, and heard. And that's where I started my principles of that. And to this day, that I think for me, that was the most amazing thing I've ever got to do. And it wasn't about money because it was it was all volunteer. How did you take care of yourself? Like, were you if you were activated hearing these people's stories? How did you take care of yourself? That's such a learned thing. Um, it's it's what I would go home and and process it, and I would do more research. So again, this was even before I went back to school for psychology. So I was doing research and trying to understand, and then that's when I started my spiritual practice. Because I, I don't think you have to believe in God or whomever, but I feel like you have to believe in something for you. And so that's when I started like meditating and I would write uh, more so to get things out. And I would read to try to understand what was going on. Um, so that for me, that's how I took care of myself. Like to this day, my friends are still like, 
I can't believe you do this work. And like, it just seems like so much. Oh my God. And I'm like, yeah, no, I love it. Like, it's, it's cool. Like I, I get to show up for people that maybe no one else can do it in that way. That's it's beautiful work in my spiritual tradition. We would call it Bodhisattva, Bodhisattva Ooh. work. Ooh, yeah. That sounds cool. Ooh, I like yeah, that. <laughs> so help all beings is not just about yourself. It's not just that reco- you don't take the recovery for yourself. But a question that I have for you is, is that um, we know that many people with uh, addictions, that's when they've kind of sexually acted out and and maybe they've got the addictions because they were sexually assaulted. So my question is, is that, when people let go of their addictive behaviors, whether it be drugs, alcohol, whatever the behavior is, how do they begin to have healthy sexual relationships? How do people who've been sexually assaulted begin to have healthy sexual relationships? I think before you even bring anyone else in, you have to work on yourself. Any class that I teach, half the class is just navigating yourself. Like, what are you actually feeling? What are your emotions? Trying to navigate, like, how to monitor your own trigger response. And if you are triggered, which we, triggers may come up and we don't know, but like having a safety plan for yourself if triggers come up. Um, Learning how to communicate. I think another thing is just figuring out what you actually want now, because I think our bodies can change. I think our mindsets can change. I think our desires can change. And for me, what I always tell people is before you want to even bring someone in, have dates with yourself, spend time with yourself. Um, Also, talk therapy is great. Um, Somatic therapy is great because, again, we hold so much trauma in our body in so many different in so many different aspects. So I think learning what you need for yourself, like some people don't like talk therapy, but they love somatic therapy and that works for them. Some people don't like somatic therapy, but they love talk therapy or they like spiritual things. So it's like also figuring out what works for you before you even get to bring other people in. I think you have to spend so much time with you Um, and, and figuring out that you don't have to do this alone, I think is really helpful for people because oftentimes we feel so alone. We feel like no one understands, or we feel like my journey or my trauma is worse than someone else's. And it's, it's like, no, you know, trauma is trauma. It may have been different. It may look different. Your trauma looks different than my trauma, but we still have had trauma and it's still in our bodies. And we still have to navigate going through the world. We still have to navigate future relationships. And that takes a lot of patience. It takes a lot of using new language and figuring out language. It takes a lot of learning how to communicate. I think one of the biggest things I like to talk about with college students, or I like to do it with college students more. I'm like, you have time, but learning how to say yes and no, this is something we've never learned. And it doesn't just have to be in relationships, but of course it can be. And finding the power in yourself before, like I said, I'm going to keep saying it before you add other people into relationships with you, you have to work on the relationship with yourself. Thank you. And I really love that you reminded us about learning to say yes and no, because actually, if we can't say no, we can never give a full yes, can we? We we cannot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We can't. And it's, you know, I wish that was something we were taught when we were younger, 
I think it would help us so much. But of course, we're all not taught that. Most of us aren't taught that. We're not taught no. how to have boundaries. We're not taught how to do that. What happens to a child when they say no? Because you do see some children saying no, no, but they get punished for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then they're like, well, clearly I'm not able to say that. And again, it's their parents probably never learned how to do it either. Mm. And so that's when I I think generational trauma happens, right? Mm. Whatever happened to them, that's what they passed down because that's what they Mm. knew. And I don't fault people. Like my grandparents did the best they could with what they knew. They had raised four children before they even had me. They thought they were done. Surprise, Mm. they got me. But they did the best they could. And I think there's an unlearning and relearning process. So how would you define trauma? What, what, how do you define trauma? I think it's anything that happens to one that disturbs your biology and how you function and who you are. And then if we sp- speak about complex trauma, what would you say that that was? Mm. I think I think it's just it reaches differently like it it sits differently within people and like navigating it I think and like I say we we all have different types of traumas and it's just how you figure out what works for you to discover what it is because a lot of us may have other traumas like you may have other traumas that you've blocked out and don't even know I know I probably do things pop up and I'm like well hell well, oh, definitely. <laughs> one, one of the places, Jiminika, uh, one of the places that I want to say where I believe that you must have experienced trauma was when you were in the in the womb, when your mother mm-hmm. was carrying you. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I can't believe that, as you call the 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 person who donated the sperm, I can't believe it could have been a harmonious relationship before that. And you. Oh, no. Yeah. No, 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 no. They had a definitely, that's why I went into domestic violence. They had broken up. They weren't even together at that point. He had broken her nose and he lured her over there with promise of giving me Christmas presents. And she just wanted me to have, you know? And so I think trauma is within us, right? Mm-hmm. Like, that's why I say like, it's in our bodies, mm-hmm. regardless if we have the memories or the forethought, mm-hmm. it's in our bodies. That's why I think mm-hmm. also movement is so good. And Mm. so healthy for us in healing. And I think there's also a constant healing process. Like I still, Mm. I'm still in therapy. I don't know. Mm. (laughs) Like it's an ongoing thing. It's interesting that you say movement is so important for us because if we, if we look at the African descent culture, dance has been so, especially in the diaspora has been so, um, yeah, it's been so important to us. You know, many of us, you know, I grew up in Black Britain. I mean, it was all about being in the clubs and being in the blues and shabines. And actually that movement, it was a way of us moving, moving through that trauma. Yeah. It's such a release thing that we don't even realize we're doing it. Like sometimes when I'm stressed out, I'm like, I just need to put music on and dance around. <laughs> and it's, it's, it kind of shakes it out a little bit. It loosens yeah. it up. I mean, I also say this thing like, oh, black people, we're good runners. We're good. This, we're only good runners, runners because of the trauma. We had to bloody run for our life during slavery. It's not not because, you know, <laughs> not, not because genetically we were great runners. You know, I mean, I think it's really interesting, again, like actually just 
having this conversation and thinking why so many of us kind of find ourselves in the sports world. You know, yeah, it's it's a thing that can save some of us because of the trauma we've experienced. Oh, I love that you put it that way. It's it, it's it really is genetically in us and it's just a survival thing. Mm. People are like, you're so you do this and you do this. I'm like, it's survival. Like I was talking, I did a podcast yesterday and we were talking about the world and whatnot and coronavirus. It's affecting mm. everyone. And mm. I was like, you know, those of us that have had like a lot of trauma, it's not as affecting us. It's not as hard for us. We're like, yes, we we don't know what's going to happen next. We're used to that. We're used to just waiting around and seeing how someone decides to make a decision and how it's going to affect our life. We're like, well, um, and also it's like, yeah, we're used to taking care of ourselves and trying to figure out what that looks like and spending time alone to navigate that. And I was like, yep, this makes sense. <laughs> And as black people, we're used to social distancing. Okay, we we know what social distancing. It was called white flight once upon a time. Mm. You know, we we, oh. we know about that. We know that Asian people are really experiencing social distancing at the moment. We we know about that. Yeah, it's it's not new for us. So when mm. I see all of these people, and like you mentioned, that woman or in the beginning of her of her making a full dramatic scene of I'm being attacked, like, ma'am, no one is attacking you. And it's, we're used to that. We're used to being followed. We're used to having people look at us. We're used to people wanting to be us, but not wanting to deal with being actually Black. Um, And these aren't new things for us. It's just more things on top of more things. Unfortunately, I am used to seeing Black bodies on my television. I'm used to seeing Black bodies on my social media. And I do think that there is a shift coming. I think there's a shift coming because people are so tired. And I'm I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm like, finally, it's only taken a thousand years, but let's try it out. Let's see how this goes. There is a shift coming, but they're still killing us is what I would say. So, oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's why I'm over here like, eh, I'm not going to hold my breath. We'll yeah. See. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I, I want it. What, what does recovery from trauma look like? be what what is how do we recover from trauma i think the better question is do we recover from trauma sure right like i said i i'm still in therapy for different things but also my life continues growing i think that we don't necessarily recover from trauma and once we take that off the table it allows people to kind of be like oh okay so it takes that pressure off so i think it's more so how do we navigate what trauma looks like in our lives because we can't take away what has happened to us, but we can figure out how to navigate in a way that feels good for us and feels that we're able to function because it's not like we can just take a pill and it's like, Oh, that's over. Here's my vitamins. Oh, that was cool. It's over. No, like it still comes up and it shows up in different ways. Even even for me, in as much work as I have done and as, as much as I read, I'm a lifetime student. I just graduated with a degree and signed up for a whole new school. That, yeah, fantastic. <laughs> but it's like, it doesn't leave my body. It may look different. It may feel different. I may know how to handle certain things. But even like I said, for myself, last year, I was reached out to by the person that raped me in college. Mm. And I still had a trauma response. 
Mm. I still shut down. I knew I had the tools, like I knew how to navigate it, right? Like I knew mm. what what's going to happen. I need to ground. I need to touch some grass. I need to eat some food. I need to rest. I need to spend time and talk to my therapist. But it still happened. Like there was no way to avoid it. So it's just mm. navigating what it is. I think there's so much pressure in, I have to heal. Like I have to, to get over this. I have to move on. Do we? Do we and yeah, we don't, but this is why so many people have addictions because as you say, they want that pill which will soothe that that trauma. And, and it's I just hearing you talk about just still having that response when this person who raped you made contact with you. Because recently um I was in a well, I was my academy was on and we were Zoom bombed. Okay, we were Zoom bombed. And mm-hmm. when you're Zoom bombed, your whole screen is taken up with child porn. Okay. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. okay. Really, really graphic. You know, whether it's, you know, some people say it isn't real or not, whatever, but what you're looking at is it's, 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 it's poor adults with babies. Okay. So this whole screen was taken up. And I can just remember the, the, the response in my body. But days after, I'll be on Zoom and I hear baby cry and I jump. You know, mm-hmm. and literally it's in my body or I hear something uh, uh, I can't understand or decipher what the sound is and that I jump, you know, because it's still in that in, in my body, you know, and it's like mm-hmm. just knowing, OK, I don't I, what I have to do is I have to ground. I have to just take a breath and I have to pause, which moves on to what are some of those self-care practices that we can do? when we are traumatized or when we have that PTSD, when we're activated, what's some of the self-care things we can do? I think first we have to acknowledge that there is self-care and self-soothing. And oftentimes people are like, wait, what? There's two different things. Yes. (laughs) So self-care is really how we're feeding our bodies and helping our bodies. So my self-care is I try to remember, I said, try, try to remember to take my vitamins and feed myself and go to therapy and all the things. But then self-soothing is what I do to distract because I just don't have the energy to deal. Myself, my self-soothing, I like professional wrestling, fun fact. And so that's my, my distraction. So I think with self-care and self, self-soothing, I think we have to figure out how they balance for us. Because I think that they are needed for, for both are needed. And both help us navigate this thing called life. Um, And so it's figuring out what feels good for you. I don't think there's just one way to be like, okay, you've had trauma. Here, get some water, eat this vegetable. You'll be good. I think it looks like addressing the situation. So maybe you need to address it and then distract and then come back and distract. Whatever you need to do to allow you to be present to deal with it. Um, and with PTSD, I think I've seen that body movement is good. Uh, aromatherapy is good. I What I'm going to school for uh, is alternative medicine because I think there's so much healing in that. So maybe navigating like what herbs work for you, what type of sensations bring you back to grounding. Um, I like to go to the gym. That helps me with movement, it also allows my body to feel strong. Mm. Uh, talk therapy, I think is great because oftentimes we are so in our heads and the tape just keeps playing over and over and over again. It's the cycle of the same words. 
that we're replaying to ourselves. So sometimes just saying things out loud to an unbiased person can be so helpful. So I I think there's so many different ways to do it. And I think that combining the self-care and the self-soothing and knowing that, oh, they both exist and both can live in harmony. What does I, it's a question I have is, is, is how do we make trauma recovery culturally specific? Because we know like all these things like mindfulness, like compassion, trauma therapies have actually come through a white Western lens. And mm-hmm. also trauma, trauma recovery has also come through a white Western lens. How do we Ooh. make it more culturally specific? We have to be honest and speak to those people directly. Um, my work that I've been doing more so, like I'm creating a retreat specifically for femmes of color. I've had a lot of pushback, but I also know that we can heal better when we're not trying to explain our journeys to someone else. And when we're not having the white gaze upon us, right? So it's creating spaces that allow individuals to express what they're actually feeling and then meet them where they are. I think a lot of these facilities, and this is why I do not work in them anymore. The last job I had work in a facility, someone had to get fired for their racism because they tried me. They found the right one and I helped them find their exit because they they thought they could do that. And that happened so much in these facilities. I've worked in them for 12 years and I've seen it so much. And that's why I want to do this work. But it's doing things that are specific to the cultures because we receive information differently. We give information differently. We speak differently, right? So like being able to speak to someone that they don't feel like they have to code switch. And for those who don't know, code switching is using language that is more westernized, right? Like keeping it cute and using proper terminology. Like, no, if I'm going to speak to a certain person, I might need to use slang, quote unquote, slang language to be able for them to understand what I'm saying. And I think there's a different type of patience, right? Because society has told us that we are not worthy of healing and that the things that are needed need to be directed somewhere else. The money needs to be focused somewhere else. The healing needs to be directed somewhere else. But we get to do it for ourselves. And I think, again, yes, they are killing us. But I also think that we are navigating and going back to our roots of herbal medicines, talking to our ancestors, figuring out what that even looks like. And I think that is how we have to do it. And that that's culturally specific. Everyone has their own things, you know, besides white people, they ain't really got a lot. But like navigating what that looks like for your culture and also feeding into what's going on in your culture. I mean, I love that you speak about the languaging because I, uh, I was with a client of mine quite recently and it just popped out of my mouth. I just said, oh, you're vexed. And the connection you know, the connection of just understanding what the word vex means for us in, in some of our black cultures. It was just, yeah, that the, the languaging is, is, is so important. But I, I am interested in this healing for femmes of colour. Once upon a time, I would have uh, identified as a as, as a femme of colour. I more identify as gender fluid now. But what mm-hmm. does that healing look like for femmes of colour? Mm-hmm. Well, the reason that, well, I'll tell you first, the reason I didn't say women I I said femmes because I am not a gatekeeper of what a femme is, right? Like if you were genetically born male and you now live your life as as femme or as a woman, come on in, listen, come through. 
I think for me, it looks like having individuals that look like you, right? So the te- my retreat was supposed to happen in April, but you know, it didn't. It's okay. It's still happening. <laughs> I don't know when, but I also wanted and chose specific people that individuals could connect with, right? I think there's so much healing when you get to see someone that looks like you, that identifies like you, that has similar journeys. So my teachers, a lot of my teachers identify as non-binary and femme. Um, so they use all different types of pronouns. They use they, them, she, her, some use he. I am open to that. Some were born, you know, males or whatever, right? Like, who am I? So for me, it allows people to show up. Some people identify as fat. So I want people to show up and not feel like they have to show up in a performative way, which I think a lot of us feel like we have to do to fit in. So having a femme of color specific thing is allowing people to show up and one, let someone else take care of them. We are oftentimes so busy taking care of other people that we don't take care of ourselves. So allowing someone to show up and just be like, hey, we got you. Allowing them to exhale and just be seen. They don't have to do work for anyone else but themselves. We often don't get that. And then having someone that looks like you, that has had similar journeys, and it's not someone talking at you, it's someone talking to you. And then allowing them to feel like they matter is my whole goal. And also language. Like we're not going to be in there pulling out scholarly books. It's like, hey, girl, how are you feeling? What's going on? Like, what what do you need right now? And I think for me, being a survivor, being a Black queer woman, like I know and I've seen how people navigate the mental health field in general. And it's not helpful. It's not healing. It's more harmful than it does good. And so creating this retreat and having that background, I was like, I want to do the opposite of almost everything I've seen and allow these people to show up and not have to adjust and just be. It's beautiful. I just, um, I have a couple more things. Um, what, 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 what's your work at the moment? What, what you, where are you working? What are you doing? What are you studying? Well, what am I studying? I mean, I went through a while and I was like, I don't know anything. Um, <laughs> right now, my work looks like navigating how trauma fits in for Black folks and what it looks like and learning language. I also think I'm doing my own like journey of navigating what Blackness is for me and what that looks like in my journey. Um, and then the other side of that is <laughs> I'm doing a lot of work with hallucinogens, THC and CBD, because I, the research that I've seen is they were legal in the, right before the sixties, they had like a 15 year legality where they were actually being dosed like medication these days. And were actually helping individuals with trauma, with, with PTSD, with anxiety, with depression, but because big pharma couldn't make money off of them, they were like, nah, we're not going to do that anymore. Take these expensive pills that can cause you more harm and can kill you. And then as I do that research and navigate all of these areas and what trauma looks like, I'm also learning how to have more conversations with people and meet them where they are. I think I'm pretty good at it if I'm tooting my own horn, but I think there's always room for growth. And then, like I said, I'm diving into alternative medicine because ancestrally, our parents, our parents' parents, their parents, they didn't have all this medication. They used what was around them. They used what was given to them and what was bartered. 
and they used it to help people heal. So why do we have to stop if all these things still exist? Like, why do we have to push that? Are you familiar with Iboga? No, tell me. Yeah, Iboga is African. So you've got ayahuasca, which comes from... Right, I've seen that. So Iboga is the African equivalent. It's plant, plant, it's plant medicine. Yeah. See, I'm like, tell me everything. I'm so yeah, excited. Iboga. Yeah, so that, yeah, we haven't even spoken about, yeah, um, working with plant medicine and, um, and, and trauma. I mean, one of the things, as you said, like still figuring out, you know, that blackness and just thinking, gosh, that, that's a trauma for us. I mean, the trauma for me growing up about, being too black, not being black enough, being white-minded, being a coconut, you're too, you're tar, baby, you're this, you're that, and then being on the streets is a, yeah, and still navigating, navigating that and actually sitting comfortably within that, yeah. Yeah, it's it's also like, I feel like an unlearning thing. We're unlearning all the things that people have told us and people have pushed their views upon us because then we absorb them. We were like, well, I guess this is true. Thank but then we get <laughs> to unknow yourself. It's true. It's all about to unknow yourself. I say, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we finally get to a point where we're like, you know what? I don't think that was right. I don't, mm. I don't think that's it. So now I have to figure out what that looks like for me. And it, it's a beautiful process. I love it. Um, but also, yeah, I in growing up in a predominantly white area mm. with mm. and it's middle class with money, rich kids. And I was like, I knew early on I didn't like people. Not, not that I didn't like people. I was like, I can smell that you're full of it and I just don't have the energy for it. So it's 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 a process, always. Where can people find your work? I mean, there are going to be many listeners out there as like, where can we find this person's work? Where can we find your work? Um, so my website is traumaqueen.love. And all my social media is Jiminika, J-I-M-A-N-E-K-I-A everywhere. And it's, I don't sugarcoat things because I find that that's too draining. It takes too much energy. (laughs) So you get what you get. And today you get me being a sad black woman because society is against it. So that's what today looks like. I should um, tell you yesterday it looked like I was Queenie my name used to be Queenie very much Queenie (laughs) and um yeah just uh oh there's just so much I know that we have to um begin to start winding down and coming to an end but just uh a lot of people who who will be listening will be people in recovery, people who, as we say, everybody who's got addictions has experienced trauma, we've all experienced it. What, what, would you, what would you say to this audience who might be listening to you? And there'll be white people listening to you. There'll be black, indigenous people of color listening to you. What would you say to them? That your journey isn't done. So, I don't know why that, that was like, that's the first thing that came to me, but here we're, we'll, we'll write it out. Um, That your journey isn't done, that there is so much more to learn and unlearn within all of us, right? Like we just talked about, we have to unlearn as Black, Indigenous, as not white, how to be in our bodies and that our bodies can be safe. Being safe in our bodies, we have to learn these things and what that looks like for us. And for those that are white, you need to unlearn and this white 
this white supremacy that has been passed down generationally. You may be like, I'm not racist, but it's within us, right? Like, and we all have biases. So we need to unlearn, spend time in other people's shoes, do the research, call people out. So I think our journeys aren't done. I think we are starting them. Of course it's within us. I mean, once upon a time, Jiminika, I I preferred to be in a space which was predominantly white. I didn't want to be in a predominantly black space because I had grown up that black music was aggressive, that black people were aggressive. Yeah, so even I, as a black person, had my internalized racism and I had to work with that, I had to work with, actually, if I had a black and a white person there, who was I going to speak to first, the white person or the black person? So if I can actually fess up and say I had my internalized racism, why is it so difficult for white people to talk about the racism that they had? Of course it's there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And if you're taught that you are the one, you are the leader, you have all the power, why would you think differently? And if it's constantly shown over and over again, why would you think differently? I think we all have room to learn and grow in society. I think some of us need to do more work, but <laughs> it just looks differently. And I continue, I'm one of those people, I continue to do the work. And the reason why is, is because it gives us freedom. I want more freedom, as you say, like you're still in the therapy. I still, I have my supervision. I, I want more, I want more freedom. Is there yeah. anything else you'd like to share Um which you haven't shared. Is there anything else you'd like to share? I think this was the best podcast I've ever done because I felt connected to you. Um, and I think this conversation will speak to so many other people. And I am appreciative for this platform. I think there's, like I always say, I think there's so much healing in hearing other people's journeys and their stories that you can pick up certain aspects and be like, oh, one, I'm not alone. Someone else did it but also you can hear how they navigated it. That's what my podcast is about, hearing someone's story and then how to how they navigate it. And maybe you can pull something that you can connect with your life. So I hope that someone pulls, someone, someone's, multiple people pull things from this conversation or able to use it in their continued journey. Well, I just feel um, really privileged to be able to have this conversation with you and there's a part of me say if you ever want somebody to support you on your femmes of color <laughs> just reach out <laughs> yeah no no yeah, I, I like I'm not, I'm not forgetting i'm not forgetting yeah yeah, yeah. thank you thank just thank, thank you. you just so much for um sharing your gift that's it you you came into this world with a gift and you are sharing that gift with others that's what you're you're doing and so just so that's the gift of the bodhisattva so thank mm. you yeah. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> hi i'm vimla sara president of the buddhist recovery network our mission is to help promote the use of buddhist teachings and practices to help people recover from the suffering caused by addictive and or compulsive behaviors. Our organization is a volunteer-run nonprofit which has expenses. We offer free monthly live teachings on the academy, free resources on our website, and all our podcasts are free. We also organize a bi-yearly summit where many of us come together. 
We rely on the generosity of you, our listeners, and our interviewees in order to produce these offerings. We are asking you to donate to help with our expenses. Thank you. And to show our gratitude for your support, all Patreon supporters will receive access to special guided meditations. To unlock these, please offer your support by going to patreon.com forward slash Buddhist Recovery Network. Again, patreon.com forward slash Buddhist Recovery Network. Thank you so much for your generosity. May all beings be free from the roots and the causes of suffering. May all beings be at peace.